Y'all have study guides, and uh, those will be handy today because we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures from all over the Bible. Obviously, if you have your own Bible, I would love for you to be more familiar with it. You can thumb through it as we go through today's teaching. The reason why um, we're looking at a bunch of different passages from different books of the Bible is uh, because this series, The Perfect Story, isn't about one particular section or book or verse of the Bible. Instead, with this seven-week series, we're taking a little bit of a step back and questioning our assumptions as Christians about this book. And if you don't consider yourself a big churchgoer or even maybe a Christian and you're here, you're a skeptic, thank you for being here, first of all. But I want to recognize the fact that we make, as Christians, preachers especially, we make a lot of assumptions about this book on Sunday mornings. We come together and we read verses from this book and we all assume we're on the same page. We all assume it's true. We assume we believe it. But no one ever really says why we should believe it why it's trustworthy, why it's valuable. No one ever really in a church setting takes the time to address your questions or doubts about this book. So what we've done with uh, this series, The Perfect Story, is we've basically created a series based on some of the most common questions we hear honest skeptics asking about the Bible. So the doubts that we hear most commonly, right? So today's question, for example, is, is the Bible really loving? Or is it limiting? Because in the eyes of, I think, modern culture, largely, it can't be both. To be loving is to love the person regardless of uh, habits and, and things that might need to change. To accept them as they are without expecting them to change because of your love. Uh, to limit someone's uh, understanding of their identity or to limit someone's habits or proclivities is not to love them, but to oppress them. And so when we look at the Bible, we, we uh, oftentimes have to address this question for people. At the heart of the question really uh, is, is all the rules in the Bible. Like this, we, we say the Bible is not a rule book, but man, it contains a lot of rules to not be a rule book. And we can't just act like that's not the case. There are hundreds and hundreds of rules in the Bible. Cover to cover, God is always seemingly laying out restrictions. And the cognitive dissonance for honest skeptics is, hey, uh, this God is supposed to be about freedom. Christians always talk about freedom. But then I go to church and all I ever hear is all the stuff I'm not supposed to do. All the stuff I'm not free to do. All the thou shalt nots, right? The things I shouldn't do with my body. And I, I, I recognize, parents, that today is a children's ministry Sabbath, so we've got your little kids with us in the room today. I'm going to try very hard to avoid you having an awkward conversation with your kids on the way home today. But a lot of these rules have to do with personal, intimate stuff. So I'm going to resurrect an old story euphemism today. Like, only the old timers will remember this. But it was one of our first jokes at the story that when we talk about coloring, you with me? I got this euphemism from my favorite HBO series, Coloring in the City. Are, are you with me? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, just ask a neighbor and it'll be awkward for a minute, but they'll fill you in, all right? So, so many of the rules in the Bible are about coloring. 
how you color, with whom you color, you're only allowed to color within the confines of wedlock. Well, that sounds delightful. Within the confines of wedlock, with one person of the opposite color for the rest of your life, that's the only way. The only way. All right? So uh, everything outside of that, sinful, not allowed, forbidden. And a lot of these rules are also about idolatry. And God seems to be very concerned with not being first in our life. And the Bible says your God is a jealous God. What is up with this jealous God? Why is he so concerned about idolatry and us not having other gods before him? Why all the rules about that? And then there's all sorts of other rules about how to treat your body, how, how to eat right, what to avoid, and what's really confusing for non-Christians is a lot of the stuff that we're told to avoid is the most fun stuff that's out there. So, you know, watch what you drink, no drinking to excess, you know, and, and, and no drugs and no parties and stay away from the really fun people. And, you know, they're a bad influence on you and, and all these thou shalt nots. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the weird thing is that Christians say all that while we also say that God creates everything. And so God made the wine in the first place. He created cannabis. He made coloring up. It was his idea. All this stuff was his idea. And now we're saying, don't do any of it. Don't enjoy it. Live an austere, boring, wedlock life, right? Don't steer away from this narrow path. And so for non-Christians and skeptics and cynics and critics of Christianity, the question is, why all these rules and there is no denying that the Bible is chock full of rules uh, from cover to cover, really. It doesn't even take that long to get to the first rules. The first rules are handed down before the first sin happens. So in Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 2, this is right after God creates everything. And God, in chapter 2 of Genesis, plants a garden, a lush garden full of beauty and trees and fruits and vegetables and everything. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam's like, Well, that escalated quickly. I was just enjoying being naked in a garden, and now I'm going to die if I eat from this one tree, right? And we know how this turns out. It doesn't go well. It doesn't take long. It's just the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, when Eve shows up. Eve wasn't even around, by the way, when God handed down this rule. And we all blame Eve for taking the forbidden fruit. She might not have even known. Who, know, who knows if they had one of those marriages where you don't even talk to each other? You know what I mean? And who knows what Adam told Eve about God's instructions? <clears throat> and, and, and to, to to add to that fact, we always blame Eve, but the Bible says that when she did take the forbidden fruit, she gave some to her husband, Adam, who was there with her. He's just like a deadbeat husband. He's just there. And she, he, he takes the forbidden fruit from Eve, and they both eat. And all it takes is one misstep. And their whole lives are turned upside down. All this paradise, all this joy. And I think it's very easy for us in our knee-jerk reaction to feel very sorry for Adam and Eve. Because we know that, how that works. We know how easy it is to fall prey to forbidden fruit. We all have done it. 
No matter how much God has given us, we've all been tempted by that one thing we don't have yet. That thing someone else has, but we're not allowed to have. That thing that's just beyond reach, right? That green grass on the other side of the fence. It's not really any greener than your grass, but man, it looks greener. It looks more enticing. And we've all been there. And so it's easy to feel sorry for Adam and Eve. But I think I searched my own heart about why my, what, what is my instinct to feel sorry for Adam and Eve? And I've, I've decided that it's part of my fallen human nature to feel sorry for Adam and Eve. Because to feel sorry for them in that situation is to neglect what God really says. What God really said to Adam is you can have it all for free. I gave you everything in this garden for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. I'm going to make you a woman and y'all can run naked through the whole garden. Play naked hide and seek. It's, it's, it's awesome. Like you can, you can enjoy each other. If you get tired of each other, then go pet a sloth and go swim with a seal and go hug a panda and ride a horse. Like it's all yours to enjoy. And if you get hungry again, I've given you every kind of tree to enjoy. Pick your favorite fruit and I've given it to you for free. Apples, oranges, mangoes, blackberries. It's all there. Bananas. It's all there for you. Just take and eat whatever you want. This is all I'm asking. There's this one tree I'm going to ask you to steer clear of. As a sign of our covenant bond, as a sign of our trusting relationship, I'm going to ask you to not go near that tree, right? And at this point, the hardcore skeptics are like, why did he even plant that tree in the first place? Why would God set people up to fail? If you really loved them, why not just skip the planting of that tree? And again, we have to check the motivations behind our questions and question our questions and doubt our doubts because if you're not careful, you'll find yourself advocating for a kind of love that's really not love at all. Because Eden, absent the forbidden fruit, would not be a seedbed of love, but one of tyranny. Because without the option to opt out of this relationship and choose their own way, Adam and Eve would not be uh, 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 anything more than just puppets, dummies, with no will of their own. They'd be slaves. That's what that would be. Eden without the forbidden fruit would be slavery because they would have no voice, no choice in the matter. And we all know that real love requires the option to choose something other than this relationship. Real love requires the choice, the freedom to choose something other than the beloved or the relationship that you're in. And so I used to think that the, the, that one tree, the forbidden fruit or whatever, was some kind of curse or some kind of stumbling block that God was putting in people's way. I now see it as a monument to human freedom, the kind of freedom that real love requires. We all know this deep down to be true. That's why we say things like, if you love them, you gotta let them go. You got to give the one you love the freedom to choose something else and see what happens. That freedom is what real love requires. Now, the part of this book, the Bible, that most people think of when they think about the rules that God layers onto the people, seemingly, is the first five books, which is called the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's the, anytime the rest of the Bible refers to the law, capital L, it's referring to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And this is the law, the Torah. This refers to the story these five books tell of how God brought the Hebrew people, his chosen people through whom he planned to change the world into existence. So they were not an ethnicity. They were not bound by family lineage or blood. The only thing they had in common in the beginning was that they were all slaves together in Egypt. And God called them together, this ragtag bunch of different slaves, out of Egypt into one covenant community. Freed them from their slavery, set them free into the wilderness. And when they got there, they were like, what do we do without, without our chains? We want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. And so God, in response, handed down the law, these rules, through Moses to give the people in the wilderness, these former slaves, a sense of... Uh, uh, purpose, to give them uh, health. He wanted them to live and survive because he had plans for them, to give them holiness, which meant they were set apart to reflect the heart of God in a fallen world. So they were supposed to live differently. That's the heart behind a lot of the weird rules you'll find in the Old Testament. And so health and holiness really are the, the two purposes behind the law God hands down through Moses. Now, for a lot of Christians, if you ask them what the law is in the Old Testament, they will refer to the Ten Commandments, the top ten list. And we're all somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments, either because you're a Christian or you've heard Christians complaining about why the Ten Commandments aren't posted in front of the courthouse or whatever. Like, Christians love the Ten Commandments. We think it should be everywhere. And I'm, I'm cool with that. I, I think the Ten Commandments... The great foundation for good living. I think it's great, right? However, that said, I do understand and sympathize with cynics and skeptics who see Christians fighting for the Ten Commandments as though those are the only rules in the Old Testament and seemingly ignoring all the other rules. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that there's more than 10 rules laid down in the Old Testament. There are, in fact, 613 different rules. And in the eyes of skeptics on the outside looking into Christianity, the Christian's blind spots could not be more glaring here because it looks like we're cherry-picking. It looks like we're saying 10 of these 613 rules matter. The other 603, eh, take them or leave them. Doesn't really matter. Just the top 10. And the rest of them, it's just kind of a case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> because we can more easily make sense of the top 10. 10 commandments make sense. They're in your study guide. I put them in there for you just so you can be reminded. And the other 603 can be a little more difficult to interpret because things can get a little weird in the other 603. There's all kinds of rules in there, uh, like uh, when a man gets married, uh, he is not to have a job for a year. He is not to be sent off to war for a year. He is to stay home with his new wife and learn how to please her. This is the law, ladies, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. However, some of you that have been married a while are like, nah, he can go to work. It's fine. I get it. 
That's what makes me happy. That's, that pleases me. <laughs> Send him to work. But that's the rule. Are we going to follow it or not? Are we going to be consistent in lifting up the Bible as true and, uh, and trustworthy or not? There's uh, all kinds of other rules about what we can eat. Uh, the Bible says no pork at all. No shellfish. Who are we to sit around judging other people while stuffing our faces with pork and shellfish? The Bible says, do not allow any psychics to live. Kill all the psychics. Half the businesses in Montrose would immediately go out of business. <laughs> Kill all the psychics. Tarot card readers should not be allowed to live. The Bible says, it. Is, it, is it binding or not? This one's a little tricky for me, but the Bible also says among the men in the assembly of God, there is not to be anyone with a damaged crayon. All right, so that's all I'm going to leave there, but that's also there. That's another rule. The Bible says if, if your crayon's damaged, you, got, you can't be a part of the people of God. Now, is that binding or not? So all these other rules become apparent to people. And it looks as though we Christians are being selective in our application. And some of y'all left churches in some past chapter of your life over this apparent hypocrisy. You saw Christians holding certain rules over certain people's heads and not applying other rules to themselves. You saw Christians seemingly cherry-picking, and that drove you nuts especially if you were in church long enough to become familiar with the teachings of Jesus. And if you don't know enough about how to read Jesus' words about the law, it's very easy to come under the impression that Jesus himself corrected or overturned the Old Testament law. And so why do we even call that our Bible if Jesus himself went out of his way to seemingly correct some of these Old Testament laws? And you don't have to look far into the Gospels to see examples of this. His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is um, from Matthew chapter 5. Um, various verses that I selected here just to make this point clear. Every time Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, he is talking to Jewish people and he is talking about the Jewish law, the Torah. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago in the Bible, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Same consequences. But Jesus ups the ante as if the Old Testament law was not clear enough. He clarifies. And he says, you have heard that it was said in the Bible, you shall not commit adultery. No extracurricular coloring. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right? Same consequences, same act, but he redefines it apparently. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, don't slap him back. Turn to them the other cheek also. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus seemingly, again, if you're a novice Bible reader, it looks like Jesus is calling into question what the Bible said. And so are Christians bound to the whole Bible or not? And if it's true that Christians, what Christians say about the Bible either being all true and all trustworthy or being a house of cards, and if you pull one out, it all falls down. And what does this say 
about the Bible. Now, thankfully, Jesus himself answers this for us. And I don't, you don't have to trust what I say. Like Jesus clears this up in the same sermon. In Matthew 5, again, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to skip ahead to the next slide because that word fulfill is the key word here. He says fulfill. The word fulfill means to complete an intended purpose. And so Jesus is very clear that he's not coming to cancel out or, or uh, correct or do away with the law as God handed it down through Moses. Instead, what he has come to do is to complete its intended purpose. So what Jesus changed was not the letter of the law, but the application of the law. If the law was handed down with the purpose of bringing about a community of people who reflect the heart of God and live together in holy communion and, and watch how they live to be set apart and look different from the rest of the world, and if, if the law was for their health and the holiness of the people of God, it still is in Jesus' day, it still is today. What Jesus changed was that instead of the letter of the law being lorded over the people of God, he offers us new birth. And when we are born again, and I know that phrase carries some baggage for you, but this is New Testament language. When you're born again, what is birthed in your heart is the heart of the law of God. And so instead of being lorded over you like a prerequisite for belonging with God, what happens when you love Jesus and when you follow him is that the heart of God's law seeps up from within you. And the heart of his law overflows from within you freely and willfully in your life. You don't complete the letter of the law because everyone else is telling you to. You fulfill the heart of the law because you can't imagine living any other way because this God has been so good to you. Because even when you lived in sin, he preemptively forgave you. You're not accepted because you fulfilled the law. You're accepted because God is good. And you want to live according to his purposes and according to his will. So you surrender and submit yourself to him. Romans 6.14 says, uh, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. If you're looking for a simple answer about why Christians don't follow all the laws, if you're one of those cynics that comes at Christians with arguments like, you are a hypocrite because you're saying all this while you're eating lobster or whatever, like, listen, there's a very clear reason why we don't follow all the rules in the Old Testament. Christians are not under the law. And this carries some really positive implications. You do not have to follow the letter of the law. You don't have to live perfectly according to the Ten Commandments in order to be saved or to go to heaven. That's really good news for some of us. It's really great news for me because I'm pretty sure I've broken several of the Ten Commandments this morning, today, already. Because I get... I, I, I get angry. I don't want to kill anybody necessarily, but I get angry. And Jesus said the same thing. And, and I struggle walking through this parking lot full of y'all's nice cars. It's, it's covetous, you know. I, I covet some of y'all's vehicles. You know, it's very hard for me to walk through that parking lot without sinning. But the good thing is my behavior does not earn my spot in heaven. 
You don't have to follow the letter of the law in order to be accepted. You're accepted. And once you are aware of how loved, deeply, unconditionally loved you've been, you want to live according to the will of God. Does that make sense? Do you see how Jesus changed the game? All right, so we are not under the law, but that's not the entirety of the story. Because, and some of y'all have noticed, <clears throat> probably, it's a little strange to hear me say we're not under the law, we're not under the rules, when you read the New Testament and you see more rules for Christians to follow. More rules about coloring, more rules about idolatry, more rules about what we should eat and how we should live together. What's really interesting about the rules laid down in the New Testament is how they strangely reflect most of the laws in the Old Testament. It's almost like there's carryover. But the difference is the laws in the New Testament are given to people who are already accepted. Not as a prerequisite for belonging, but as a gift to people who already belong. Now, <clears throat> when you walk with Jesus, you naturally begin to see the heart of God's law coming up from within instead of being oppressed or, or, or uh, enforced from the top down. <clears throat> now, final question that I think a, a real hardcore skeptic would ask is if that's true, and it's not about rules being lorded over us, then why do we still talk about the rules for Christian living all the time? Why does the Bible still in the New Testament lift up these rules for living? Why, why the boundaries if we're really free? And some of y'all, and myself included, we really need to think about this because we know God would have boundaries for us if we would let him. And if we lived according to God's will for our lives, there are things we would steer clear of. And it's not the same for everyone. Some of you all know there are things you need to stay away from. There are triggers you need to be aware of. Some of you need to stay away from certain people and, and be aware of certain relationship patterns you get into and, and, and steer clear of those and uh, be aware of how much you're drinking or, or how you're living and how you're treating people. So it's different for everyone, but why does God set boundaries around us if we're already acceptable in his eyes? There's a few reasons why, and I'll walk us through real quick. Uh, first is God sets boundaries around us for our protection, for your protection. This is hard for proud people to accept, but you don't really know a lot of the danger that you're in. Sometimes, even as grown adults. And the Bible talks about God as a father, a loving father. And any father here or any parent, I see y'all. I see you working out there. It's kids' Sabbath day. You're doing your best to harness your kids and to keep them from getting in trouble. And I appreciate your efforts on a Sunday morning. But you know how vigilant you have to be raising children, even teenagers. You have to be vigilant because they cannot conceive of some of the danger that they're in. <clears throat> Dangers that you know about from experience, right? So 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Wow, again, that escalated quickly. I didn't know I was being predated by a roaring lion. Thank you for that information. 
But I didn't know it because my mind can't conceive of it because my perspective is limited. And so God sets boundaries around me to protect me from outside attack. Second, God sets boundaries around you for your um, preparation. Uh, another way to say this is to develop your character. All right? I promise that not all these are going to start with P. I'm not that kind of cheesy preacher. All right? I did try, but I'm, I couldn't. I failed. So <clears throat> for your preparation. All right. So uh, I'll show you this passage from Proverbs that I love. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long. I'm actually going to start at the third line from the bottom. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. All right. Again, it's tough if you are a proud person. I have within me, I fully confess, a rebellious spirit. Any other rebels in the house? I do not like being told what to do or how to do it or what not to do. Listen, I have no problem wearing my seatbelt, but I have a big problem wearing my seatbelt because the car beeps. I don't like being told to do something. And I will put up with that car beep for miles and miles if I have to, just to prove my point. I don't like the government telling me that I've got to wear a seatbelt. Maybe it's the Texan in me. I don't know. I'm a grown man, and I think I've got a pretty good handle on my life. I'm a pretty good person, and I don't need any politician or any preacher in my face, in my business, telling me how to live. And I know I'm not the only one here who struggles with it. Y'all, most of y'all are Texans too. You have that spirit within us. And if you go to church, you just want to go and, and hear words that already affirm what you already think to be true about yourself. You're a good person. You're in control. You've got this. Go live your best life. See you next Sunday. <clears throat> and, and yet, that is a sign of an underdeveloped character. That rebellious spirit that leads to destruction. I remember my first counseling session, uh, one of my first counseling sessions in Houston. It was right after we started the story. This would have been like 2015. And this woman came to me and she had been to the story a few times. And she was quite honestly anxious about her place with God. Like she didn't know if she was saved or not. She was raised Christian from the time she was a baby. She was baptized in another church close by. And uh, her parents took her to church every Sunday from zero to 14 years old. And then they stopped going to church, cold turkey, and they never went back. So she wanted to know if that baptism took, like, do we need to do it again? And I said, listen, I, I, there's a lot of, you know, bad things happening in churches, but there's no church that usually, there's no church that's corrupt enough to cancel out the power of God's grace in the water of baptism. I think you're good. And she goes, well, I, I need to tell you what happened at this church. She said, uh, we went every Sunday. I had all my friends there. I was deeply involved there, and so were my parents. And, and then one year, we got a new preacher in, and he got up into a pulpit one Sunday morning. He had a scowl on his face, and then he tore into the congregation with this uh, hellfire and brimstone sermon that was all about the revelation he received the past week, which was really a product of the rumor mill, I think, but it was true. It was a true rumor that there was a Sunday school class, a long-standing Sunday school class in that church that had been swinging together for years, all right? So, so y'all can explain that to your kids on the way home, but they're swinging together for years, openly. And I was a little surprised. I thought I'd heard it all. I hadn't heard that. 
And this woman was, uh, was telling me that they left right then. They never went back. And I was like, well, I can understand your parents not wanting to go back to this church where all these appalling things had been tolerated for so long. And they were probably appalled by it. And she goes, no, no, no. They were mad because it was their class. <laughs> and so I was like, maybe we ought to revisit that baptism thing after all. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I didn't. We don't uh, re uh, Anyway, so... <clears throat> What I, what I perceived in, in her parents without even knowing them was a rebellious spirit. You don't want to be corrected. You don't want to be called out. You don't want to be held accountable. You just want to be you, do you. No one bothers you. No one asks you to change. Listen, that is such a wide road to destruction. That is born out of insecurity. It's born out of pride. And the sooner you surrender and submit your will to God's, the more joyful, the more fulfilled, the happier your life will be. Sometimes God puts boundaries around us for our preparation. Third, God puts boundaries around us for our inspiration. Another way to say that would be for our freedom. All right. So uh, the best example of this was when I went to see an artist uh, speak in Kansas City. When I lived in Kansas City, she was a famous local artist and I went to see her. I, I was familiar with her work and I uh, when I saw her, I knew she was the artist because she looked exactly like a famous local artist would look. She had the white girl dreads and uh, she had uh, ironic glasses and tattoos and her apron looked like she stole it from the Cracker Barrel. And all this, so I, I knew she was full hipster. She was the, the artist. She gave her presentation. At the end of the presentation, she opened it up for Q&A and an art student asked her about her creative process. Where do you begin? Your work is so beautiful. How do you even start? your creative process. And she said, the first thing, before I even have the idea, before I even have the vision, I must know what my canvas is, what the limitations of my space will be. She said, part of me wants to paint this whole city. I'd love to paint a whole room, but that wouldn't be beautiful. It wouldn't add anything to the world. I need to know my limitations in order to freely create. And the same is true for you and the way God is toward you. Some of the limitations he puts around you are for your inspiration, for your freedom to live the full life he created you to live. And that gets us to the fourth and final point. It is for your satisfaction that God sets boundaries for you. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief, the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. <laughs> I cannot express how deeply Christians miss this point and how common it is for Christians to be the killjoy in the room. Oh, well, there's Christian Bob. We better stop having fun while he's around. Like, how did we get there? We're supposed to be the most joyful people in the room because we're free. We don't have to doubt our place in the world or our place with God. It is all settled. We don't have to follow the rules to be accepted. We are loved so completely that it makes us want to follow the rules. Like it's a beautiful existence. And we see how for us God is. So how do we take on this negative persona? I think it's that old fallen nature within us that sees the forbidden fruit over there. The thing over there that looks so enticing that we can't have. The thing over there that, that she has, but I don't have. The grass is always greener, even when it's not. And in that fallacy, we commit the same mistake we talked about with Adam and Eve before. Looking at the one thing we're not supposed to, to do. 
and missing all the things that God empowers, created us to do. Just like with Adam and Eve, God says to you, I've given you all this. Run around and play. You can't do it naked anymore. That's just the rules. But run around, play, enjoy relationships and affection and love and community. Enjoy the creation I set you in. Enjoy the sun on your face on a cold winter day. Enjoy the breeze at your back on a hot summer day. Enjoy the stars. Enjoy the beaches. Enjoy the mountains. Enjoy adventure. Enjoy the assurance that Jesus' act on the cross affords you. Enjoy all of it. You're free to live a full life. And so live with joy, freedom. Listen, God sets boundaries for you because God is for you. Like a father and a child, like you can't even know the depth of the father's love for you. And all the ways he's looked out for you. All the hopes he has for you. The riches of his grace afforded to you. And there's no better time than Thanksgiving weekend to stop and take stock and give thanks for all that he has given you, even when we haven't deserved it. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of change. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard, hard for us to acknowledge our rebellious spirit, our stubbornness, our pride, all the ways we reject correction and accountability. God, it's so easy to miss all the things that we're missing out on by refusing to surrender our will to yours. And I pray for those of us who are deeply skeptical about the Bible and preachers like me, I pray this morning, especially for us who have more questions than answers, that we would be willing to doubt our doubts just for a moment, to ask ourselves about the source of that rebellious streak in us, to ask ourselves whether it's really been good for us to rebel against all authority, including you just for a moment to be touched with humility to see what it's like to see the freedom that comes with surrender and submission to your will for our lives we pray in Jesus name amen